Good morning, church. Grab your Bibles. Open them up to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're not sure where that is, it's in the New Testament. Go past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and you're going to run into the Corinthians. It's the second one, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As you are grabbing your Bible and turning there, um, do you guys remember the TV show Different Strokes? Do you guys remember that show? Uh, an old TV sitcom back in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, a couple kids from Harlem, Arnold and Willis Jackson, are welcomed into the family of a very wealthy New York man. His name is Philip Drummond. Their mother, who used to be his housekeeper, passed away, so he brought them into their house, into his penthouse, I should say. And the two brothers, I'm telling you, they went from the projects to the penthouse, and that's sort of the, the whole comedy of the show is seeing them adjust to this new lifestyle. Sometimes it's challenging. Sometimes it was funny. And, you know, for me, my favorite part was little Arnold. What you talking about? What you talking about, Willis? You remember that phrase? What you talking about, Willis? Now, it it was so bad that there was days, and and Dan Savage actually reminded me, uh, I remember when you were a youth pastor, you used to actually go around to some of the kids and say, what you talking about, Willis? And it's like, I did that? It's like, I probably did. That's how much that show impacted me. It's like one phrase, right? But it was one of those moments when it's almost like, you know, little Arnold is like, somebody would say something like, like, what do you mean? It's, it's almost like it didn't register to him because he was so used to the, the project life that to move to a new life, it just didn't make sense. And he's like, what are, you, what are you talking about, right? Well, I was thinking about that because in the same way, by the grace of God, we are saved. We have a new relationship with a heavenly father. We are given a new spirit and a new way to live and a new pursuit in life. And, and here's the thing. The, that old life is still available to us. The temptations that we, we had around us growing up, still available to us. Just sort of like the projects were still available to Arnold, right? But we have a new life now. We, we've been taken into a new neighborhood as we have this new spirit living within us. And last week we established that the church, it, it's not just a building, brick and mortar. The, the church is a body of believers, The church is what Jesus called a a group of people out from where they were. He says, I'm bringing you out. You are different than everybody else. You are the church. And then he's like, bring us all together. And then he's building us into a stronghold. That's sort of what we established last week. So the church is basically a group of people who are living differently because we have repented of our sins. We are following Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord. Romans chapter 4 Verse 5, if you remember the verse last week, it said, But people are counted as righteous, meaning we are right with God now, not because of our work, but because of our faith in God who forgives sinners. We become in a right position with God when we confess our sins. And because of what Jesus did by dying on the cross and coming back to life, We now have a new position with the Lord. So like Arnold and Willis Jackson, we have a new life that's set apart from the old way of living. We have a new pursuit 
in our life that's different than the old things we used to pursue. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 33. He said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. Paul echoed this using a few different words as he talked to Timothy. He said, Timothy, you're not like that. He goes, you run from all these evil things. He said this, pursue righteousness and a godly life along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So as a group of people who have repented of our sins, we've asked for forgiveness, we have a new life, we are pursuing now this new life. We are pursuing a righteous life. We are in a position of righteousness, but we are pursuing righteous living. And it begins, as we said last week, with, first of all, repentant prayer. And then immersing yourself in God's word. And then it takes actual effort. Like we would physically train, we spiritually train. And this pursuit, I'm going to tell you right now, can be scary at times. can be definitely challenging. Somewhat dangerous. Typically, it's just uncomfortable. Because as we are pursuing Christ, we got the rest of the world pursuing the world in a different way. So we are always running into people that think differently, do things differently, because we have a different pursuit in life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, hopefully you're there, I want you to understand this. Pursuing God is challenging for many reasons, but here's one big one. The opposition is real. We wonder sometimes in our minds, we doubt, we wrestle with things in our minds and our hearts. It's like, can I trust God or not? Is my faith real or not? What if I doubt? See, our opponent, the devil, he spiritually attacks our minds and hearts. He wants us pulled away from the truth. Remember, we said we've got to immerse ourselves in the truth, right? Well, if he can pull us away from truth, we can be easily defeated. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, says this. In their case, the God of this world, which is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I was thinking about this. You know, it's like the God of this world, Satan, he blinds the minds and the eyes of those who don't believe. And this word here for blinding is an intentional gouging out of. It isn't like when somebody's like gets sick and maybe over time their eyesight, eyesight fails, they have an infection or something. This is an intentional going in and gouging out the eye. I'm purposely blinding you. That's what the devil does. He purposely wants to blind us. And here it says, he's blinded the minds of the unbelievers, people who don't believe in God. And I'm sitting there and saying, well, that makes sense. Because there are times when I will struggle with somebody who doesn't believe in God. They just don't want to hear anything I have to say. There are people that you will run into that do not believe in God. They don't care what you think about God, about His Son, Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit. They don't care. Their eyes have been gouged out by the devil, basically. They spiritually cannot understand what you are saying. The God of this world has blinded those who don't believe. And you wonder why there's so much opposition towards truth? This is why. I want you to think about this. 
Think of some of the things today that people oppose the truth in. And you're sitting there saying, how can you think that way? That doesn't make sense to me. I mean, how many of you in here would say, it's okay to kill a baby. If I brought a baby up on stage right now and killed that baby in front of all of you, how many of you would say, well, that is wrong? I hope and pray every single person in this room would say, that is definitely wrong. Definitely wrong. I agree with you. No baby should ever be killed. But for some reason, we have justified in this world that it's okay to kill babies. Well, they're not really alive. Then I don't understand that because sometimes they're saying, well, let's, let's deal with science. Okay, let's deal with science. You're telling me you've got something dead in you and she has something dead in her and these two dead things come together and then suddenly you take a pregnancy test and voila, boom, there is something living in you. That's hard to believe. Truth is, there's something living in you and something living in her and they come together and at conception, you have a baby. That baby is alive. But... Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers and we think that it's okay to kill babies. How could you ever believe that unless you're blind to truth? Some people think Christians are bigots, hateful, and we look at certain groups of people and we say, oh, because of that sin in your life, that sin in your life, mm, you're bad, I hate you. Why, why, do they, why would they say that? Maybe because sometimes when we preach truth about certain things in God's word and it points out that lifestyle and says that behavior is sinful. So I will preach from the pulpit that behavior is sinful. All of a sudden, I supposedly hate people because I preached of a sinful behavior. Now, you know, you you want to know why I'm preaching about a sinful behavior? Because I love you. Not because I hate you. Because I love you, I'm telling you about that sinful behavior because I don't want that sinful behavior to take you down the road to hell. But because I care about you, because I love you, and I want you to spend eternity in heaven, I'm telling you this. But see, the world, blinded, says, oh, well, you're preaching that? You must hate people. That just doesn't make sense to me. But when I read 2 Corinthians 4, 4, now it makes all the sense in the world because their minds have been blinded to the truth. Look at verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me sum up those, those verses here real quick and just by saying this. See, the God of this world has downplayed the glory of who Jesus Christ is. Let's not talk about Jesus, right? That's what the God of this world wants. That which should be celebrated is mocked. Jesus, look at this verse, is the exact likeness of God. Jesus Christ is Lord. And the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And that light is in us who have faith in God. To me, when I look at that scripture, like, that's amazing. Who Jesus Christ is is the exact likeness of God. He deserves all the glory in the world. And that light which he created is in you and I. We have the glory of God within us ready to burst out and show people. But the God of this world is blinded our eyes, and we want to talk about this, right? Look at verse 7. 
But we have these treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. See, where darkness was in us, God has now brought light into us. We are changed. His light is in us. It's from God. It's not us. We're just the vessels that contain the light of God. Read on. Verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We were never abandoned by God. Sometimes as we are living and pursuing a righteous life, going against the world, we get banged up. We get knocked up against. We get persecuted. We get ridiculed. We get mocked. It's like that vessel, that jar of clay. It gets broken. It gets crushed as Paul's describing here. And sometimes we get really uncomfortable in our Christian lifestyle. And the first time opposition arises and we face pain or we get uncomfortable, we think God has left us. No, he hasn't. God is in us. And when that jar is cracked or busted or broken, the light of Jesus shines out. See, God works through your brokenness. And to me, that is amazing. It's like a genie in a bottle. You have no idea the power inside until it gets rubbed wrong. And God's power, God's light resides in you and I. He's not abandoned us. Just because you're going through a tough time? Nope. Look at verse 16. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And as we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen is transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Church, he's saying, listen, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Instead, change your focus. I know you're focused on all the negative stuff that's happening to you right now. You're focused on the transient temporary, what's taking place right now. I want you to place your focus on that which is unseen, the heavenly things. Fix your eyes on what is ahead. You're Right now, you've got opposition. What's the opportunity out of this? Now, over the past uh, three, four weeks, I've been working with a lot of athletes, and I've shared this probably with a hundred plus, couple hundred athletes, and we, we use the phrase called flipping the coin. And I might have already mentioned this to you, but basically it's this, this break it down. It's real simple. A coin has two sides, heads and tails. And when you flip one, you're gonna, you, know, it's, you never know where it's going to land. In life, certain things happen to us. And when it's bad, flip the coin, lands, it's bad. All I can see is the one side. And it's an obstacle. It's something bad in my life. How do I deal with this? And the more I focus on it, the bigger the problems become in my life. And basically what I tell these athletes is this. you got to flip the coin. If it's an obstacle, flip the coin to the other side. Look at the opportunity. This is basically scripturally what we're looking at here is we're looking at the seen things around us and it's bothering us. You need to flip the coin and look at the unseen. Look what God can do. Look at the eternal. Look at the things that are above. And when you do this, you're focusing on on heavenly things. 
You're focusing not on what's going on in your life right now, but what can become. So you've got an obstacle in your life. Wow, how is this going to be an opportunity? Let me give you some ideas. First of all, you have now the opportunity to see how Christ suffered. You're suffering, now you know how Christ suffered. That relates you to your Savior. You now have the opportunity to keep you from pride. Because a lot of times in our life, we get big-headed, we get all swelled up, and it's like, I'm going to be humbled by all this. Yep. So maybe this is an opportunity to keep you from pride and to learn what it means to be humble. Maybe this is an opportunity to look beyond this brief life and to look for heaven. Maybe this is your opportunity to long for heaven. Earth is just a temporary location for all of us. Eternity, that's a long time. That is your final home, your final destination. And I believe sometimes living on this earth, all it does is just make me long for home. Maybe that's what this opportunity is. Maybe this is an opportunity to prove your faith to others. Because when you start living life for the Lord in the midst of opposition, people step back and they say, so you really do believe. Maybe this is your opportunity to show your faith. Maybe this is your opportunity for God to demonstrate his power. Because you have no answer, he does. There's so many opportunities when problems come our way. And that's not all there is. See, our ultimate hope is life after death. Someday there will be a place without pain, without suffering, without tears, without cancer, without all the junk there is in this life. But it's not now, it's not yet, but someday. And knowing that truth, knowing that someday that lies ahead for me, I can press on. Today's rough, but my eyes are fixed on the unseen, on what's ahead, on the eternal. And when others are maybe crying or they're, they're, they're upset, they're frustrated, they're giving up, they're sitting on the couch, hiding in the basement, you are pressing on because you have that faith that you know that what you're facing is temporary and that God is going to shine through your brokenness if you would just allow him. God's with you. His light is in you. Pursue that righteous life in the midst of opposition. You just flip the coin. I'm trusting you, God. I'm going to focus on the unseen. You are a faithful God. I trust you. I trust you. And remember this, but because Satan has blinded the eyes of unbelievers, that kind of attitude is going to be looked at as foolish. Everything that I just said in the last five minutes, the rest of the world says, that's foolish. That is so foolish to trust. (laughs) Mark Batterson in his book says this. Faith is the willingness to look foolish. Noah looked foolish in building an ark in the desert. Sarah looked foolish buying maternity clothes at age 90. Moses looked foolish asking Pharaoh to let his slaves go. The Israelite army looked foolish marching around Jericho blowing trumpets. David looked foolish attacking a giant with a slingshot. The wise men looked foolish following a star to Timbuktu. Peter looked foolish stepping out of the boat in the middle of a lake in the middle of the night. Jesus looked foolish hanging half naked on a cross. He goes on to say this, but the results speak for themselves, don't they? Noah stayed afloat during the flood. Sarah gave birth 
to Isaac. Moses delivered the people out of Egypt. The walls of Jericho came tumbling down. David defeated Goliath. The wise men found the Messiah. Peter walked on water. And Jesus rose from the dead. If you aren't willing to look foolish, you are foolish. But that's why so many people have never built an ark, killed a giant, or walked on water. Quit playing it safe. And I read that and I said, Amen. You know what I'm saying? As you pursue a righteous life, you will feel what it's like to go against the flow. That's just a part of this life. When you choose to follow Jesus, you're going against what everybody else thinks is right. You will sense the looks of others. You will hear the ridicule of others. But you are called out, church. You are set apart. You have the light of Christ in you. You have the image of Jesus residing in you. The Apostle Paul said this in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to paraphrase a lot of what chapter 5 says. But he says this. He goes, while we're living in our earthly bodies, we groan and we sigh. And it's not that we want to die and get rid of the bodies that clothe us. He says, but we want to put on these new bodies so that our dying bodies are swallowed up by life. He goes on to say, God has prepared us for this. And as a guarantee, he's given us his Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus Christ lives in us. He says, since we believe that Christ died for all, well, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive this new life, we will no longer live for ourselves. Instead, we will have Christ who died and was raised for us. We don't live for me. We live for he. Anyone who belongs to Christ, he goes on to say in chapter 5, has become a new person. Old life is gone. New life has begun. God, God brought us back to himself, restoring a relationship through Jesus Christ. Now God's given us this task, this same task of bringing people to him. He goes on to conclude this chapter by saying, we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. God's making his appeal through us. Think about that. You're an ambassador. Now look at chapter 6, verse 1. We will read that one together. He says this in chapter 6, verse 1. As God's partners or workers, we beg you not to accept this marvel." Not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. God's given us something we don't deserve. It's called grace. He's given us new life. He says, you've been given it. Now don't ignore it. Don't ignore it, please. God just gave you this incredible gift that's sitting right next to you. And you're like, that's a nice gift. And we turn away. And I said, don't ignore it. You see, Paul then goes and says, you are a co-worker. With Christ, a coworker. Many of you in here have coworkers, people you work side by side with. Some of you more so than others. You will do anything for them; they'll do for you. They got your back; you got their back. You know, you, you partner with them in whatever way possible. And here we read this. Paul says, "You're a coworker with Christ." Now, earlier, chapter five, he called us ambassadors. He sort of carries that idea into this chapter here. But think about the ambassador part first. An ambassador is basically described as anybody who's working together with the king. As an ambassador, I have no power. 
I have no authority. I have no agenda. All that belongs to the king. The king delegates all of his power, his authority, his agenda to me. I then carry it out. That's the job of the ambassador. God is our heavenly king. He gives us the power and authority and the agenda, and we carry it out. How so? He, we do so now as a co-worker. He reminds us, you're brand new. My spirit's in you. I've given you a role now. I've given you a relationship with me. I want you to work with me. Think about that for a second, please. What an amazing job. You get to partner with Christ. Think about that. Who's your co-worker? Christ. What? What are you talking about? He's your co-worker. Jesus Christ is your co The thing is, you didn't pick him. He picked you. That's even more amazing. Working together with God. God doesn't need Paul. God doesn't need you or I. But he chooses us to be his co-worker. I was thinking about this. It's sort of like, you ever see a dad out mowing his lawn with a push mower? And then you see the little toddler right beside with this little, little tyke type mower, whatever that is. So that happened to me. I remember mowing the lawn one time. I looked down, I think it was Colin maybe. He had a little mower and a mower. Now here's the thing. I could have very easily have said this. Hey, Colin, thanks, buddy. I got this. Being very efficient, I want to get this job done. So you might slow me down. So you might want to get out of the way, you know. Go back inside, play with your Legos or something, right? But what a good father does, a good father says, you know what? I want you to go ahead and walk beside me because I want you to learn because someday you're going to be doing this. But right now, let's just work this together. That's what our Heavenly Father does. Our Heavenly Father, does He need us to change this world? Really, think about this. No, He doesn't. God can do anything He wants. But he calls us his co-workers and he invites us to come right beside him and say, walk with me. I'm going to work through you. You're my vessel. My light's in you. Oh, and by the way, if you get bruised and battered and cracked as you're pursuing this righteous life with me, I'm going to shine all the more. I'm going to shine all the more. Look at verse 2. Goes on to say this. For God says at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is a day of salvation. Paul gives this sense of urgency. This is no time for us as Christians to be consumed with being easy and being comfortable and just focusing all on ourselves right now. It's time we roll up our sleeves and say, we're going to be working together with the Lord. We're partners. It's time to pursue that righteous life. Paul goes on in the next few verses to say, we're going to live in a way, you know what, the way we're going to live in such a way that people are going to stumble because of us. No one will find fault with our ministry, with what we're doing. In everything we do, we are ministers, true ministers of God. And he talks about how he patiently does this. He goes, we're facing hardships. You're gonna, things are just going to happen in your life, church. Listen, things are going to happen out of your control. You're going to have to deal with it. That's what he talks about when he, when he says here, uh, I'm recounting troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. Verse 5, then he says, I'm suffering directly by wicked men. We, we've been beaten. We've been put in prison. We've faced angry mobs. He's like, something's just happened to you. Something's other people put upon you. And then he said, some things are self-inflicted. He goes on to say in verse 5, Worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights. I've gone without food. 
So he says, bad things happen. Sometimes people put it upon me. Sometimes I put it upon myself. But in all those moments, I continue to press on. I continue my pursuit. He's describing these hardships, but he also says this. But you know what? In my pursuit for Jesus, I'm also blessed by his presence, by his spirit. See, when you pursue a righteous life, God is with you. And he matures you. Look what he says in verse 6. He says this. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, by the Holy Spirit within us, by our sincere love. Church, if ever a time was more needed, it is now for Christians to show kindness and love and patience in a short-fused, angry world, Christians should be showing the fruit of the Spirit on a daily basis. And that's what Paul's saying here. Look at verse 7. We faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We use weapons of righteousness in, in the right hand for attack and the left hand for defense. We serve God whether, listen this, we serve God whether people honor us or despise us. Whether they slander us and make fun of us or they praise us. We're honest, but they call us imposters. We're ignored, even though we are well known. We live close to death, but we're still alive. We've been beaten. We have been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We're poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, yet we have everything. You see, in Jesus Christ, we are rich. And as we pursue him against the flow, everybody's going to say stuff about us. They're not going to like us. They're going to think the way of a Christian is weird. They're going to think we're hateful. They're going to think, they're going to say things about us that are not true. And Paul says, I'm pressing on. I'm pursuing a righteous life. I'm patiently working with God. I'm his co-worker. I'm working with him. I don't know the outcome. I'm just going to be faithful and focused as I go. And church, that's what I want to encourage you with today. We're talking about pursuing a righteous life. Well, here's the deal. If you're going to say, I'm all in. I want to pursue a righteous life. Well, as you pursue a righteous life, you will face opposition. Do not give up. Please do not give up. Do not give up doing the right things. You know what's right. I know what's right. We've got to continue to do the right thing. You never know when one simple act of obedience can change another person. One little boy, a couple pieces of fish, a couple pieces of bread. What did, what did Jesus do with that one little boy in his one act of obedience? He fed thousands. One person choosing to listen to God, saying, I'm going to pursue this righteous life, can change Thousands, if you just let God work through you and don't give up. I want to close with a story I read a couple weeks ago, and I just thought, man, this is it's such a good story. And it just reminds me of how God just says, I just want to use you for this one thing, just be obedient. Even though it may hurt, may not make sense, just be obedient. This story took place, it actually happened about 100 years ago. Philadelphia Church in Stockholm, Sweden, sent two missionaries out to the Congo. Now, David and Sue Flood was this young missionary couple, and they went with another young missionary couple. And they, they macheted basically their way through the jungles to establish 
a little missionary station out in the middle of the Congo. During their first year, not one person gave their life to Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that as a missionary? I'm, I'm here in remote tribes and, and sharing Jesus, and nobody's given their life to Jesus after a year. But that did not stop Sue Flood from showing love to a little five-year-old boy. This little five-year-old boy would come back to the back door of her house every day to deliver eggs. And she would just show that little five-year-old boy some love. Well, Sue became pregnant not long after they had arrived in the Congo, and uh, she was bedridden during much of her pregnancy due to malaria. She gave birth to a little baby girl. Her name was Anna. April 13th, 1923. Unfortunately, 17 days later, Sue passed away from the malaria. David, her husband, made a casket. He buried his 27-year-old wife on the mountainside overlooking the village. Grief took over David's life, turned to bitterness. David gave his daughter Anna to the other missionary couple, Eric, the Ericsons, and he moved back to Sweden. He spent the next five decades drowning his sorrow with alcohol. And he warned those who came close to him, do not talk to me about God. Meanwhile, the Ericsons, they raised little Anna. And she was a toddler. But at that age, when she was a toddler, the Ericsons died three days within each other because they were poisoned by the villagers. Little Anna was given to an American missionary couple, Arthur, Arthur and Anna Berg, and they adopted little Anna and renamed her Agnes. They called her Aggie. They eventually returned to America to pastor church in South Dakota. After high school, little Aggie had grown up. She enrolled into college. She went to North Central Bible College in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She met, married a young fellow. His name was Dewey Hurst. They started a family of their own. They served a number of churches. Then Dr. Hurst became president of the Northwest Bible College. And on the 25th wedding anniversary of Aggie and Dewey, they, the college gave them a special trip to Sweden. Aggie's sole purpose was to find her biological father. It's been five decades, and they searched Stockholm for five days, could not find him. On the fifth and final day when they were about ready to leave, they went to the third floor of a rundown apartment and they found Aggie's dad. He was on his deathbed with a failing liver. The last words David Flood ever expected to hear were the words of her daughter saying, Papa, it's Anna. And the first words out of his mouth was filled with remorse as he said, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to give you away. They embraced and a 50-year curse of bitterness was broken. Now here's the end of the story, the rest of the story, as they would say. Five years later, Dewey and Aggiehurst attended this Pentecostal conference in London, England. One of the speakers that night, his name was Rugata. Rugata was uh, the superintendent of the Pentecostal church in Zaire. What caught Aggie's attention was the fact that Rugata was from the same village that her mom and dad were missionaries at. So after the message, Aggie got an interpreter and she went to Rugata and she asked him these questions. She wanted to know if the village 
that he was at was the village where she was born. Well, Regatta told her that he grew up in that same village in which she was born. She asked, if, she asked him, did you know the missionaries there, David and Sue Flood? And he said, every day I went as a little boy to the back door and Sue gave me eggs every day. She told me about Jesus every day. He continued, I don't know if she had a single conversion in all of Africa besides me. But shortly after I accepted Jesus Christ, she died and her husband left. She had this baby girl named Anna. And I always wondered what happened to her. At that time, Aggie revealed that she was Anna. They started to cry. And they embraced each other like long-lost siblings. Rugata said, just a few months ago, I placed flowers on your mother's graveside on the side of that mountain. And on behalf of the hundreds of churches and thousands of believers in the Congo and Zaire, we thank you for letting your mother die so that so many could live. One act of obedience. Had David and Sue Flood never said yes to going overseas, they would have never had hundreds of thousands of believers in Jesus Christ. They would have never experienced that. There are times when we are pursuing Jesus and we wonder, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? This is sort of painful living for Jesus at times. It's worth it. Your one act of obedience could change hundreds and thousands of lives. And even if it isn't hundreds and thousands, if your one act of obedience changes one life, it's worth it. Worship team, would you come up, please? I wonder how the disciples felt after they saw their Lord crucified. Saturday morning, how did they feel? Is this pursuit of following Jesus, was it worthless? Our Savior's dead, but they all discovered the next day on the resurrection that it's worth it. Whatever you are going through in your pursuit right now, do not give up. Do not give up. Continue to pursue Jesus. Continue to pursue him. You are new. His light is in you. His spirit is in you. Pursue the life he's given you. Would you stand, please? Heavenly Father, what an amazing God you are. Lord, thank you for David and Sue Flood. With over a hundred years ago when they set off on this crazy adventure to a place they've never been just to tell people about you. What a seemed like a horrific story for Sue to die of malaria and David to drown his sorrows in alcohol. But from the two of those faithful missionaries, a little girl grew up to discover that her parents' efforts did not go in vain, but that hundreds and thousands of lives, many who are probably, God, right now in your presence worshiping you, that just blows my mind. 
simple acts of obedience, God. Help us. Help us as we pursue a righteous life to not give up. To believe that maybe this this one act of obedience, maybe this one act of obedience will change one other person's life. These are all opportunities, God, for you to be revealed. Because when we are broken, your light will shine through. In our brokenness, you can heal. But in our brokenness, you can heal others as well. God, help us to press on. Help us to not give up as we pursue you. God, I thank you for this church. Lord, we want to sing to you. We want to worship you. We want to thank you for being a mighty God who saves and gives us his spirit. We love you, Lord. In thy name we pray. Amen.